A pastor named Wilbur Reese once said that sermons ought to be rated in much the same way that movies are. For example, a G-rated message is one that's acceptable to everybody. They contain phrases like, Go ye therefore into all the world and smile. Or, what the world needs now is peace, prosperity, and lower gas prices. A G-rated message doesn't offend anybody. And people who hear this kind of message often respond by saying, Wasn't that a wonderful message? In fact, there are some people who will only listen to a G-rated message. And then you have messages that are PG. Um, they're intended for audiences that are a bit more mature. They often are rather mild in calling people to change, but the message is subtle enough to allow the pastor to backpedal and change his meaning if he finds that he's inadvertently offended anyone. Uh, PG sermons often contain phrases that nobody really understands, like, and that, my friends, is the eschatological significance of incarnational Christianity. And you know you've heard that kind of message when people walk out and say, wow, that was deep. <laughs> Very thought-provoking. And of course, if you've done a PG sermon really well, nobody understands what you said, but they're not willing to admit it. And then you have the R-rated message. Now, this is when the pastor tells it like it is. And pastors, typically, who are willing to deliver an R-rated message, they have a healthy self-image and an outside source of income. Um, people who hear R-rated messages often describe them as challenging or even controversial. And you know the next category, right? X-rated messages. Now, these are the kind that contain radical ideas that got people in the Bible into all kinds of trouble. This is the kind of message that got the prophet Amos run out of town. Uh, the kind of message that, that caused Jeremiah to be thrown into a pit. And pastors who are willing to preach this kind of message know there will be consequences. Now, the master of that kind of radical message is Jesus Christ himself. Now, today we're continuing looking at a message that Jesus preached. We're looking at the first part of that message. The entire message is called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, why is it called the Sermon on the Mount? Who can tell me? <laughs> because he preached it on a mountainside. Good. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I suspect that some of you who may be familiar with the Sermon on the Mount are thinking, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Man, I love the Sermon on the Mount. It's got some of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. It's not that radical. Well, I would say this. How we read the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus intended us to do because of his teaching are not always the same thing. Because, think about it. It is the preaching of Jesus Christ that got him into really serious trouble with the religious leaders. It's this kind of teaching that cost him his life. The truth is that this sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount really is a radical message. Now the word radical in English comes from a Latin word that means root. And in this message, Jesus gets to the root of human existence. He talks about who we are and who God is and how God wants us to live in this broken, fallen world. Mark Twain was asked one time if he found it hard to understand the Bible. And he said that he wasn't bothered so much by the parts of the Bible he didn't understand. He was bothered by the parts he did understand. And with this Sermon on the Mount, you know, the meaning is really not hard to understand. It's clear, and because of that, it's really powerful. And I'm convinced of this. If we'll take the teaching of Jesus at face value, if we'll do what Jesus said, take his words and put them into practice those words will change our lives. 
and by extension change our families and change our church family and change our community and change our nation and change what? The world, which is exactly what Jesus intended. So, let me give you the big idea of Jesus' sermon. And this is on your outline. It says this, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is about who you are and who you can become as a citizen of God's kingdom. And notice this statement. This is so important. An entirely different kind of life is possible when you allow Christ to rule in your heart by embracing him as your king. We just sang it. We just sang it. Jesus, you are my what? You are my king. If we really mean that, if we really live as if Jesus is our king, an entirely different kind of life is possible where we become more and more the person that God created us to be. And so Jesus, in delivering this sermon, begins with this statement. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, two weeks ago, Pastor Phil spoke on this statement by Jesus. And this morning, I want to do this. I want to briefly review what Jesus says here because we're going to look at actually three statements and they're all connected. So we have to go back to this first statement. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, let me just tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you go around sad and depressed all the time. You don't go around like you are. Don't worry about me. Nobody ever does. That's not what it means to be poor in spirit. It also doesn't mean that you don't have enough money, but it is related to the idea of poverty, being poor in spirit. And here's what I mean. When you're poor, you don't have the resources to provide what you need, correct? So you have to do what? You have to depend on somebody else. Now, it's really interesting because Jesus, when he said this, could have chosen one of two words for poor because there are two words in the New Testament, translated poor. One word means this. It means that you have very little money. You're somehow getting by, just scraping along. The other word means this. It means that you're flat broke, that you're busted, that you are bankrupt. You don't have anything, and that's the word that Jesus uses. So what does it mean when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit? He's saying blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. Those who have nothing to offer God those who have no way to come into God's kingdom or into God's family. And this really is the message of the gospel because this is the bad news. I mean, we come into this world with a heart that, that pulls us away from God's purpose and God's plan, and the Bible says that all of us are sinners, that we've all broken God's commands to love him and to love each other, and our sin separates us from God because God's holy and we're not. And the Bible says, hey, the news gets even worse because God is a just God. He has to punish every sin you've ever committed. And here's the kicker. You can't save yourself. You are spiritually bankrupt. So if you can't save yourself, what do you have to do? You have to depend on somebody else to save you. And who's that somebody else? Yes, Jesus. Because that's the plan. See, that's the good news. It's a story about Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. And what God the Father does, he sends his son Jesus, second person of the Trinity, to our world. And Jesus does what no human being had ever done. He lives a perfect life. And that uniquely qualifies him to offer his life in exchange for ours. And church, I never, ever get tired of telling this story. Because this story has changed my life, and it continues to do that. That this Jesus loves me so much that he was willing to die on a cross. He was willing to allow the Father to take my sins and put them right on him. And Jesus was punished in my place and in your place if you will believe and trust him and follow him. And here's the deal. Jesus roars back to life, and he says, hey, I'll give you a new life if you'll turn away from your sin and follow me. And here's, here's the reality. 
we cannot save ourselves. We can only accept the gift of God's rescue. So what did Jesus mean when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God? This also is on your outline. Truly joyful and content is the person who is dependent on the king. See, we are dependent on the king Jesus to get into God's family because we can't save ourselves. But it doesn't stop there. Every single day that you live as a citizen of God's kingdom, you are dependent on Jesus. Do you realize that? Depending on him for, for strength and wisdom and hope and courage, everything you need. One of my, my favorite songs by James Taylor is Fire and Rain. And I remember years ago hearing that song, and he got to verse 2. And it goes like this. Won't you look down upon me, Jesus? You've got to help me make a stand. Um, just got to see me through another day. My body's aching and my time is at hand. I won't make it any other way. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, to say, Jesus, I'm not going to make it any other way. Jesus, you've got to step into my life. And that's what God wants us to do. That's how God wants us to live as citizens of his kingdom, as people who are dependent on the king. And then Jesus goes on to say this. We looked at it last week. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We saw that when our hearts are broken by the things we've done or failed to do in the past, that God comforts us with his pardon. And we saw this powerful truth. Truly joyful and content is the person who is forgiven by the king. Now, today we're going to explore another bold statement that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount when he says this, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And when's the last time you heard somebody say, hey, listen, if you want to get ahead in life, if you want to get to the top, if you want to be really successful, you have to be meek. Once again, Jesus is making one of those paradoxical statements. It's just a a contradiction to conventional wisdom because most people do not have a favorable impression of the word meek, especially men, right? Hey, I want to be a meek man. <laughs> Seriously? But guys, listen, don't, don't check out right now. Check in because I will tell you this. <laughs> this has been a very convicting sermon for me personally when it comes to meekness, and I want to explain that. But first of all, let's define the term. What is meekness? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. I read this week about an organization. It has a very interesting name. It's called the Dependent Order of Really Meek and Timid Souls. Now, if you make an acrostic out of that organization, you know what the name is? Doormats. Doormats. And this is their official motto. And this, this, you can't make this stuff up. This is their official motto. The meek shall inherit the earth, if that's okay with everybody. Now let me say this again. Meekness is not weakness. It's not being a doormat. It's not letting people walk all over you. So what did Jesus mean when he said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Truly joyful and content is the person who is humble and gentle like the king. Like the king. Now here's a definition of gentleness that I think is helpful. Gentleness is strength under control. Strength under control. I, I was talking with our, our staff and our worship team this morning, and I typically just kind of introduce the topic for the message, and I was thinking about this. We have a dog that loves to hunt lizards. He just, and when he hunts them, he brings their life to an end. <laughs> 
And so, it, you know, if he's inside the house and I see a lizard, I'm thinking, oh, man, i got to rescue the lizard. And I just kind of, you know, go into action. But I realize those little things are hard to catch, aren't they? And you have to be careful because if you grab them too hard, what will happen? You'll smash them. Oh, I'm sorry, lizard. I was trying to rescue a man. And so what I have to do, I have to just use just enough pressure, right, to pick up that lizard and to take it outside and save it for my dog. Now, that's the picture of gentleness, is strength under control and I thought about this you know God the Father rescued me by reaching down with his hand his gentle hand he picked me up that is strength under control now it's really interesting because the word in the Bible uh, many of you know the New Testament was written in the Greek language but the word for meek is used to refer to a wild stallion that has been tamed now follow this line of reasoning. Let me show you a picture of a couple of wild stallions here. Think about a wild horse. It has incredible strength. It can definitely hurt you and even kill you if that strength is not controlled. But if that horse is tamed, here's a picture of a tamed horse, it's still strong. But now that strength is brought under control and used to serve its master. That's what humility is. Is strength under control used to serve our master Jesus. Now here's the connection with the two other verses. You think about this. When you see yourself as somebody who's dependent on the king, when you see yourself as somebody who's forgiven by the king, it is so much easier to be humble and gentle like the king. So, what are the benefits of gentleness? I mean, how can gentleness make your and my life better? Well, here's the first way. Gentleness diffuses conflict. Gentleness diffuses conflict. Look at this Bible verse. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up what? Anger. Have you ever been in a situation where you're talking to somebody and you know that the conversation is not headed in the right direction? It's getting a little tense and you can see conflict coming. Ever been there? Having a conversation with somebody in your family, somebody in your neighborhood, somebody at work, somebody at school. And it's like you know that this little relational fire is starting to break out. And you've got to decide, what am I going to say next? And you know you can make it better or you can make it much, much worse. <laughs> it's almost like you have these two buckets in your hand and one has gasoline and one has water. And you get to choose which one to throw on that fire. I was thinking about something I heard about Winston Churchill, um, who had a really quick wit and a certain way with words, and he often had these um, conversational battles with Lady Astor, and one time she said, Mr. Churchill, if you were my husband, I'd poison your tea. And he said, Lady Astor, if you were my wife, I would gladly drink it. What does the Bible say? A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up what? Anger. So what does it take to choose a gentle answer? Instead of the one you really want to say, sometimes, it takes strength under what? Under control, the control of God's spirit. And that is what gentleness is all about. The question is, where does that strength come from? And the answer is, it comes from Jesus. It comes from Jesus. And friends, I'll tell you this. Um, as I was working on the message this week, I was thinking about how many times in my life I've been in that situation where I see that little fire breaking out. I know that things are not going in the right direction. And you know what I've done? I poured gasoline on the fire by the words that I've used. And I have learned and I continue to learn that when I'm in that situation and I see things escalating, what I need to do is just do a hard time out and say, Jesus, would you help me? 
would you give me words that you want me to say? And this is just a real practical tip. If you're in a conversation and the other person's getting louder and louder, you need to get softer and softer. You need to de-escalate the situation with the words, the gentle words that you can choose to use. And church, let me say this. This idea of gentleness is something that should characterize all followers of Jesus Christ. Look at this verse. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. We, that is we who follow Jesus, respond how? What's the word? Gently when evil things are said about us. What does it take to respond gently when somebody is saying something mean, nasty, or evil about you? It takes strength under God's control. And that's what gentleness is. So the first benefit of gentleness is that it diffuses what? You can say this really loud. It diffuses conflict. Okay, here's the next benefit. Gentleness communicates love. Gentleness communicates love. Now, this is a word to all you guys who are married, and you know who you are. One of the best ways to improve your marriage is to be gentle with your wife. Some of you are shaking your head because you know that's true, right? One of the best ways to improve your marriage is to be gentle with your wife. Uh, what does the Spanish word caballero mean? Who knows? This is important if you travel outside the country and you're trying to use the restroom. You want to go in the right door. What does caballero mean? Gentlemen. Exactly. So what does God say in his scripture? Hey, guys, I want you to be gentle men. Gentle men. And, and here's a specific instruction. This is in Colossians chapter 3. Husbands, husbands, love your wives. Guys, can we read this together? And be gentle with them. Ruth Graham Bell was married to Billy Graham, and she said one time that a, a great marriage is the union of two forgivers. Man, that's so true. Because you know, when you're married, there are times when you hurt your spouse or your spouse hurts you, and you need to be able to ask for forgiveness, and sometimes you need to be able to extend forgiveness. And what enables you to do that? Gentleness. Gentleness. And gentleness is not just important in marriage, it's really important in parenting. Take a look at this verse. Fathers, don't exasperate your children by coming down hard on them, which is the opposite of gentleness. Take them by the hand and lead them in the way of the master. Isn't that a beautiful picture of a parent being gentle with their child? Moms, dads, let me ask you this. Um, and you don't have to raise your hand because I already know the answer, but I just want to make a point, okay? Have your kids ever made you angry? Have your kids ever frustrated you? Have you ever felt like yelling at your kids? What do you need when that happens? A vacation, a cruise. <laughs> you need, starts with a big G. What is it? Gentleness. You need strength under control. Where do you get the strength? From Jesus. And it really is that, you know, parents' prayer, Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me control my emotions. Jesus, help me control my words because I want to say something that will help, not something that will hurt. Listen, being gentle communicates love. In a marriage, it communicates love from a parent to a child, and it communicates love in our relationships with other people. Think about this. How do you react when somebody just lets you down? They break their promise. They do something that really ticks you off, something that's wrong. And you just think, man, how do you react? Are you judgmental or are you gentle? Look at this verse from Galatians. It says this, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, 
you who are godly, notice this, should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens. And in this way, notice this phrase, obey the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Love one another the way I've loved you. Gentleness communicates love. When you help somebody get right back on the path without being judgmental toward them. And that is so important. Now here's another benefit of gentleness, and this is on your outline. Gentleness helps us to build bridges to those who need to know Jesus. Gentleness helps us build bridges to those who need to know Jesus. Church, listen, this is really important. We live out our commitment to Jesus before a watching world. And we need to really be aware of that day in and day out. People are watching how we respond to the pressures and the problems and the challenges in our lives. And people are watching how we react when somebody disagrees with what we believe as a follower of Jesus Christ. I think we all know this, that there's a, a huge um, discussion in our nation right now about civility. How many of you have heard a discussion about civility recently? And this is especially true in the political arena because we have people that disagree. And instead of attacking each other, what we need to do is listen and try to understand each other. That's what gentleness is all about. Now understand what I'm saying. God does not want us to compromise our convictions. God doesn't want us to cave into culture, but he wants us to connect with people by being respectful and gentle. And that's what the Bible says. Peter, follower of Jesus, wrote these words. He said, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with arrogance and aggression. What does he say? Yeah, gentleness and respect. And here's the last benefit. I could list many more, but here's the last one this morning. Gentleness makes you more like Jesus. Gentleness makes you more like Jesus because this is what Jesus said he said, take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you. Teach me what, Jesus? How to live in this broken world. Let me teach you. Why? Because I'm humble and gentle at heart. And notice the promise. And we'll talk about this in just a moment. You will find rest for your souls. How many of you would like to find rest for your souls? Man, I would. And I'm going to show you how to do that in just a moment. But let me first answer this question. What does Jesus mean when he says the meek will inherit the earth. I mean, what's that about? Well, Jesus is actually echoing some words in the Old Testament. This is from Psalm 37. It says this, For yet a little while the wicked shall be no more, but the meek shall inherit the earth. Two destinies of two different groups. People who are wicked, people who are gentle like Jesus. And so when when people in the Old Testament read that, they thought of the promised land. The meek will inherit the earth because God promised Abraham, hey, I'm going to give you two things, a whole lot of people and a whole lot of land. And so as you read the story in the Bible here, you know, Israel, they, they come into the promised land and things are okay for a while, but they start being unfaithful to God. And so what happens? They are forced into exile. They lose their land. And then if you fast forward to the New Testament, just imagine that you're, you're there on the mountainside and Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. What's going through your head? I mean, you're thinking, well, Jesus, you know, some people say you're the Messiah, so if that's true, then you're going to come and you're going to overthrow the Roman government and give us our land back. But Jesus, how's it going to happen if you're meek? 
Because in their mind, meekness is weakness. We need a warrior king, not some meek king. Are you kidding me? But they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. His message was, in fact, radical. Because Jesus was, was saying, look, I came to be your king. I'm setting up a kingdom, but this kingdom is not just for Israel. I'm a king for all the nations of the world. And one day I'm going to come back, and one day there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and the meek, the ones who follow me, the ones who become like me, they will inherit the earth. Does that make sense? I mean, this is incredible. And look at the statement on your outline. What does Jesus mean when he says the meek shall inherit the earth? He is referring to the fact that those who follow him will be a part of a kingdom that will extend around the world. Now, here's what's so fascinating. Does the kingdom of God exist right now on planet earth? Let me say that again. Does the kingdom of God exist right now on planet Earth? Yeah, we are part of the kingdom of God because it is the people who embrace Jesus as their king. Is the kingdom expanding like crazy? I mean, if you follow what's happening in other nations, people are coming to Christ in unbelievable numbers. The kingdom of God is expanding. And here's what I want you to know. You're a part of that. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a child of the king. Now here's why that's so practical for us. Remember we talked about the big idea of the Sermon on the Mount, that an entirely different kind of life is possible when you allow Jesus to rule in your heart by embracing him as your what? As your king. Because King Jesus is gentle. King Jesus is humble. And if you become like Jesus, it will change your life. Let me ask you this. How many of you would like to reduce the stress in your life? Okay. <laughs> how many of you would like to experience less stress in your life? You know how you do that? You become more and more like Jesus. Because when you become a gentle man or a gentle woman, you have more patience with people. You have more peace. You dial down the stress in your life. You become more like your king. So here's what I want to do as I close the message. When Jesus finished his message, the Sermon on the Mount, he basically, you know, used a story about two builders, and, and many of you know the story, and he basically said this, look, if you take my words and put them into practice, you'll be building your life on a solid foundation. So Jesus says, uh, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Okay, Jesus, how do I take those words and put them into practice in my life today? Now, I'm just going to recap some things and add a few new ones, but here's some very practical ways to take this teaching and put it into practice in your life. Number one, if you're married, be gentle with your spouse. That's where you can start. Here's another. If you're a parent, be gentle with your children. Here's something else. I was thinking about this. Many of you um, go to a restaurant during the week, often after church on Sunday morning, right? How many of you ever eat out at restaurants? Okay. Um, or you go shopping and you get in the line at Winn-Dixie or Publix or wherever. I want you to think about this. Think about the person who's serving you. And instead of being demanding, be understanding. Because that's what gentle people do. Think about what their day has been like, not just having your needs met. You could even ask them, hey, <laughs> how's your day going? That's what it means to be gentle like Jesus. And here's another um, there's, there's going to be um, the conversation that you have if you're a follower of Jesus where somebody disagrees with you, especially if you're trying to present what God says in his word. 
And when that person disagrees with you, I want you to do what Pastor Rick Warren advocates. Are you ready? Be tender, but don't surrender. And here's what that means. You know, we should be gentle and respectful, but listen, church, do not compromise what God says. I mean, this is my goal as your pastor. I want to be gentle and respectful of the people that God brings into my life, and I want to talk to them, but I never want to compromise what God says. And here's something else. When you encounter that situation where somebody has made a really bad choice, somebody that you love, instead of being judgmental, be gentle. Realizing that could be you. Be humble and gentle in dealing with those who've gotten off God's path and help them get back on the right path. And finally, listen, if, if you want to become the person that God wants you to become, if you want to be like Jesus, then listen carefully to the words that he spoke. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am so grateful for that invitation. I know it's true. And God, I pray that we would come to you and, and find rest for our souls as we become more and more like your son, Jesus. Father, help us to be gentle. Help us to, to turn to you and ask for your help throughout the day, to ask for your words, to ask for your grace. And Lord, I pray today for the one who maybe has never understood how much you love them. They've never understood the, the good news of the gospel, that today they would simply say, Jesus, I need you. I want you to change my heart. Jesus, I believe that you died on a cross to pay for my sins and came back to life. And I trust you. I give my life to you. God, you always honor and answer that prayer. And Lord, today, as we bring the service to a close, I pray that we would celebrate your grace, your amazing grace. Because God, here's, here's the truth, and, and you teach us this, that if we will stand under this waterfall of grace and let it fill our hearts, then we will have the grace to give to each other and to the people that you bring into our lives. We'll have the grace for our husbands and our wives and our sons and our daughters and our grandkids. So God, thank you for your grace. And may that grace transform our hearts today. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Church